Hey, you are about to listen to a somewhat abbreviated edition of Corona Calls. That's because this is a podcastified version of a live radio segment, and it is the time of the year when we shorten that radio segment to free up time to ask for people to donate to the radio station that makes it happen. If you would like to pitch in, it's really easy. Just go to kpfa.org and mention Corona Calls in the comment field when you submit your donation. If you want to send in a question for next week's segment, we're only taking them through email right now. The address is coronacalls at kpfa.org. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in COVID-19 and in the world of infectious disease. We're joined by Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, I wanted to start with a, a big new paper that dropped that I think touches on a lot of questions we have gotten from listeners recently about testing. Uh, This is in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, entitled The New Normal Delayed Peak SARS-CoV-2 Viral Loads Relative to Symptom Onset, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My my takeaway as a layperson struggling through it was that while early in the pandemic, your peak viral load and peak capacity to infect people would occur at about the time you got symptomatic after infection— now the symptoms come much sooner than the peak in viral loan, which means you might be feeling sick and testing negative early in the course of the disease and getting false reassurance from that. Um, first of all, I, I should probably ask you if, I, if I've paraphrased it correctly and, and then ask you what you think about the implications. Sure, you paraphrased it perfectly. I've been waiting for a paper like this for a while because I think we all have recognized that when people become symptomatic and they have COVID, oftentimes early on the rapid test is negative and it turns positive the next day or the day after that or even sometimes the day after that. And so this paper really confirmed what I think many of us have been seeing clinically, and that is the rapid test remains a wonderful test for detection, but you can't count on a negative test to rule out that you have COVID. And that's, I think, one of the bottom lines of this paper. When I saw it last week, I sent it to a lot of my colleagues uh, just to get their take on it, uh, because I think it's very it's a very important change in the way this virus is behaving in us. You know, Omicron has really changed the game a lot. It doesn't appear to be quite as virulent as its predecessors. It tends to cause more upper respiratory disease than lower respiratory disease in general. And as you just pointed out, it is detected a little later after symptoms often. So at the viral loads that they charted, um, how useful would, uh, uh, how much more useful would a PCR test be early in the course of infection? Well, that PCR is the gold standard, and that's what they use to compare with the rapid home tests. And the PCR test is positive sooner. So it's a better test to determine if you've got COVID. So if you're at high risk for a bad outcome, let's say you're elderly and you have symptoms of COVID, they just started, you test negative at home. If you have access to, and 
I think that's sometimes a big if, but if you have access to getting a, a PCR test, get that because it'll diagnose you more quickly. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't turn around in 15 minutes like the rapid test. You'd have to wait until the next day. So, yes, the PCR test is a better test for detecting that you're infected early on in the course of the illness. I'm curious what the, the later viral peak means for antiviral therapy. I'm thinking specifically Paxlovid. Um, the, the initial guidelines that came out with were start it within five days with symptom onset or you're not going to get any benefit from it. Um, if viral loads are peaking later in the course of infection now, is that something that needs to be reexamined? That's really an interesting question, Brian. Um, and we don't have an answer for that. We have some data about treating longer than five days, or excuse me, starting Paxlovid long, uh, past five days, but there's not much data on that, and so that's why that five-day limit remains. We haven't clinically seen that um, this change that we've been talking about in terms of when the viral loads peak has really made a difference in the outcomes with Paxlovid, but it's just one of the difficult problems we have with studying um, this virus because not only do we change, that is, we've got immunity now from previous infection or from vaccination or both, but the virus has changed significantly since it first entered the human population in the winter of 2019. I'm also curious what this means for non-pharmaceutical inventions to, to slow the spread of the virus. Um, if, if you have a virus where you're at like peak infectivity right before you get symptomatic, to me it would seem like that suggests a different set of precautions than one where people hit that peak well after they have symptoms. Um, <laughs> controlling uh, the behavior of people with symptoms becomes more useful or better targeted to, to halting the spread of the disease. That's n another interesting question you raise. Um, it has not to date changed the way we are recommending isolation or uh, quarantining people. Actually, we don't really recommend quarantining now. But it does make one think that with the idea that if currently the recommendations are if you come down with COVID, then after five days, if your symptoms are essentially gone or almost gone, and on the sixth morning of the sixth day you check yourself and you're negative, then you could come out of isolation but remain, continue to wear a mask for five, the next five days. That's a general recommendation. The CDC doesn't even require that you do that test. The reason I'm going into that is because after five days and you don't test, Previously, that was much safer to do, but now with the peak viral load occurring later, it may be much more prudent to add that test on on the morning of the sixth day to see that you're negative. And if you're positive still, you have to stay in isolation. So I think mm. for me personally, uh, if I came down with COVID after five days of illness, if I was just about well, I would check myself on the morning of day six with a rapid test. And if it's negative, I would feel much more confident that I could just wear a mask and be out in public. I'm curious, I, I, I know we're entering the area of kind of informed speculation, but the fact that the viral load is peaking later in infection, is this more likely to be 
the changing property of the virus as it's involved into the Omicron lineage or kind of a, a changing properties of our population immune profile? In other words, people who've been vaccinated or previously infected have immune systems that are primed to respond faster to the virus and the early symptoms are from the immune response. Yes, you're right. Here we can really only speculate. We know that <clears throat> we know that Omicron has changed um, compared to its predecessors, as I was just talking about a little bit earlier. But we know that the immunity level of our population has changed. It's important to go back and remember, like in January of 2020, essentially no one on this planet or a handful of people had been exposed to this virus. No one had immunity to it. It was We were completely naive to this virus. And the virus appears to have been a little bit different than it is today. And here we are fast forwarding, you know, going on four years now. Um, we have a population that 95, 96% of the population is immune. So we're gonna behave differently even if the virus hadn't changed, but the virus has changed. So we've got two moving parts here and each of those moving parts has a is a bell-shaped curve of a spectrum of, of how the virus has changed and how much immunity we have. So it's really impossible to know the answer to your question. I suspect it's a combination of the two. Um, one other piece of news I wanted to touch on before I moved on, it just kind of caught my fancy, that the World Health Organization has now recommended uh, dropping a strain of influenza B from the flu vaccine. This is influenza B Yamagata. Uh, apparently, as I understand it, because uh, th that particular strain of influenza has not showed up in genomic sequencing of any samples collected in the last three years because it appears to have gone extinct uh, at roughly the time the entire world locked down to prevent the spread of COVID suggesting <laughs> we, we did not stamp out COVID, uh, but we stamped out a strain of flu. Yeah, that was interesting. We first saw those reports late last week. And Yamagata, uh, influenza B, um, was a big problem back in 2012. And then it's sort of tapered off. And as you said, we just haven't seen any now in a few years. And so the WHO is recommending for next year's uh, well, it's not really next year's influenza vaccine. It's for the winter in the Southern Hemisphere coming up that uh, they're going to drop that particular portion of the vaccine. So it's probably going to go back to a trivalent vaccine, meaning it's going to cover two A's and one B, but not two B's, um, and as we're getting right now. Now, that said, there's no problem with getting the vaccine now. All of the vaccines are what we call quadrivalent, meaning they have two A's, cover two A's and two B's. Um, so there's no problem getting that, but the, one of the B parts, the B Yamagata, may not be necessary. How common is it to, to drop strains from the flu vaccine? In, in, am I noticing this only because I'm paying attention for the first time? Yeah, sometimes the, uh, we drop strains completely. Sometimes we just switch them a little bit to something that more closely approaches what's circulating. More typically, the latter. That is, every year, beginning for in, North, in the Northern Hemisphere, the influenza surveillance sites around the, around the world, Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, compile all the data and make a decision as to what 
should be the components of next year's vaccine. And most years, there are changes, but they're not very significant. That is, we don't drop something. We may switch from influenza A uh, from one particular strain of that or subvariant of that to another. But usually, it's that's typically what we see. It's less common to just drop something completely, but it's a pleasure to see that because it looks like Yamagata is just no longer around. Was it particularly widespread uh, before early 2020 when the, the masking and social distancing seems to have snuffed it out? Well, it's unclear what snuffed it out. You know, influenza is is so mutable. It changes all the time. And that's why every year we're making usually minor changes to our uh, vaccines. But every few years, influenza changes dramatically where it's completely different than something was circulating before or a strain is. So influenza remains very difficult to keep up with. You know, it's very much like um, COVID, except that influenza is even more mutable, the way it can change itself. So uh, these are both formidable viruses, and that's why... um, We've seen so many pandemics from influenza and now more recently from SARS-CoV-2. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, one more thing I wanted to, to touch on. It's probably all we'll have room for. Uh, new survey data on this vaccination season coming from the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases uh, suggests about 40% of the public in the U.S. don't plan to get the updated COVID shot. And when it comes to the annual flu shot, about 43% either don't intend to get it or are uncertain whether they'll get it. Um, I'm, I'm curious how this compares to prior years and, and you know what, what you think it says about the, the state of uh, vaccination campaigns and public health communication efforts. Right, well, <clears throat> it says quite a bit about the effectiveness of of a small group of anti-vaxxers and how they've been able to promote their ideas and create doubt in people's minds. But in terms of how many people, how this compares to previous years, it's running about the same plus or minus 10%. We don't get nearly as many people immunized against influenza as we should. And the reason I say should is because not only does the vaccine help prevent you from getting infected, but if you do get infected, it markedly helps in reducing the severity of your illness. People tend to forget with influenza that on an average year, you've got somewhere between 15 and 30, 35,000 excess deaths. On a bad influenza year, you may have 60,000 excess deaths. And then of course, with these pandemics that occur every 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, Um, you have many more excess deaths than that. And that's just here in the United States. People tend to think, oh, it's just the flu, but it's really a serious illness. And we have a tool to modify the severity of the illness and sometimes even prevent it. And it would be nice to see people taking greater advantage of this really very valuable and safe tool. On a writ larger, we've seen the COVID pandemic, during the COVID pandemic, we've seen problems in getting people immunized against very basic and uh, childhood illnesses, or quote childhood illnesses like measles. And we've seen that drop around the world. And that's very concerning because measles is the most contagious of all the respiratory viruses we have. And 
measles is a very serious disease, particularly in young children or in um, in adults, uh, where it carries a very significant amount of morbidity and mortality. And those numbers are going to go back up when we see the number of people immunized drop. So all in all, Brian, um, it's discouraging to see that we don't have more people in this country and around the world getting vaccinated than are. The people who are getting vaccinated are doing something that I think is very, very wise, and that is protecting themselves against serious infectious diseases like influenza and COVID. I think um, one thing it's worth pointing out is we're partly the victim of some uh, semantic drift around the word flu. A lot of people say I got the flu when they got a sniffle and fever and don't actually know what caused it. Could have been a rhinovirus, could have been the common cold, whatever. Um, actual confirmed cases of influenza tend to be more serious. That's true. Uh, interestingly, like everything in life, influenza has a spectrum. Some people get infected with the virus and don't get any symptoms. Some people get cold-like symptoms. But influenza, characteristically, the top of that bell-shaped curve, most cases are really quite hard. Um, I mean, I remember when I've had it in the past, I can almost tell you the, the hour or the half hour when it happens sort of like hits you um, with a fever, cough, sore throat, upper respiratory symptoms as well, you're miserable. It's it's not a disease you want to have, and you're right. We tend to say, oh, it's just the flu, but the flu is really a serious disease. And when we say it's just the flu, we typically don't know what it is <laughs> unless we've gone on and gotten swabbed. Um, Dr. John Swartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. Dr. Schwartzberg is Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He joins us most Mondays after 7.30 news headlines to go over new developments and to answer your questions. Fewer questions during Fund Drive because we reserve some time for raising money. But if you want to send in questions for next week, which will be Tuesday because of Indigenous Peoples Day, you can send those questions to coronacalls at kpfa.org. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.